Hello, everybody, and welcome back to COVID-19 <laughs> quarantine. I think this is day 21 in New Jersey of quarantine. Yay. Um, Jason <laughs> and I are obviously not quarantined because we work together, so we've infected each other already. We work together on the podcast, and we work together outside at a pharmacy. So Hashtag if she essential. caught something, I probably caught it as well. If and I if... caught something, she probably got it too. So um, we are being safe, though. I haven't had any contact with any of... Really, yeah. your other family members. Facts. But you know, we're essential in them. Um, we're, we're essential. Somehow. COVID's out here. Just a, a fast pass reminder to everyone please wash your fucking hands wash and your please damn stay hands. the fuck inside because people are fucking dying because you want to go outside and enjoy the air. Do it in your own goddamn backyard. Like, if you want to enjoy the air, open a window. If you want to go out for a run, do it by yourself. I see so many with people. With a mask groups. and a dog. <laughs> with a dog. Because if you have a dog, you have an excuse. If you're just running, to run bruh exercise in your backyard don't do it with people get a free weight why are you running around with people what are you what are you dumb yeah you know what the whole moral of this is don't be an asshole don't be a dick and if you're non-essential i'm looking at you kitchen decorators don't be outside Anyways, yeah. rant over. Rant over. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Fast <laughs> Fast. Uh, I don't know how, but we always find a way. Every time it's your episode, we're laughing in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because we end up crying at the end. Yeah. So welcome back to Fast Past. The only this is gonna be the only happy part of this. The history podcast in close to thirty minutes or less. As always, I'm Megan. I'm Jason. And today we are continuing this month's theme of pointing a mirror to American history and discussing the dark spots we have in it. And there's plenty. But uh, this topic has been on our list for a while, and it seems very relevant today since the COVID nineteen outbreak, which we were literally just talking about. Uh, since its emergence in the United States, violence against Asian Americans has spiked considerably as the media seems to put blame on China for it getting this bad and Which, not on us for not washing our damn hands or, or social distancing. Ventilators or stockpiling doing, ventilators. Or taking this seriously when it first came to us in January. Or panic buying everything and standing next to each other while you're panic buying toilet paper. The hand sanitizer ain't going to save you. Why the hell are you taking all my goddamn toilet paper, dude? Like, I'm, I'm running low. What the fuck? I can't buy, like, a single roll for, like, a dollar, a dollar twenty something. No, I gotta buy a single roll for like two dollars, three dollars. Inflation is a bitch. It's not even inflation. It's you people fucking up the market. Goddamn. Which brings me to today's episode and another time in American history where we had a president um, that was a wartime president because yes, Trump has called himself a wartime president. Oh. Then. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting yeah. considering the last time he was supposed to be. Never mind. Yeah. He was supposed to be involved in a war, but he <laughs> ran away. Um. Yeah. So. The last time we had a wartime president was World War II, because, fun fact, we have not declared a war since. So today we're going to be talking about Japanese internment camps. Now, this, again, was a topic that was pretty hidden from my history studies in middle school, high school, and even in college. Same. I remember in the fourth grade, we read a story about a kid in internment camps that had to do with baseball and needing to use moldy bread to help with illnesses. Yeah, it was the weirdest thing, because it was supposed to be like this little uplifting story about... A Japanese kid playing baseball, but it was just very depressing. Yeah, for fourth graders, we really, um, our teacher did a great job of showing us the world. Honestly, like she did. Yeah, no, thinking, she did. Thinking back on it, yeah, she did. Yeah. I just don't, re- didn't recognize it then, but I do now. Now you do. Thank you, fourth grader teacher. Appreciate you. Um, briefly in, in world history in high school, we also discussed this topic, but 
Even though I graduated with an honors history degree and I had honors classes dedicated to American history, this was never mentioned. Because, of course it wasn't. Things that we want to keep hidden find a way to stay hidden. Exactly. Or at least buried. Or a lot of it goes missing. Hmm. So, let's get into this. Hell yeah. First, we have to set the stage, of course. It is right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese in an attempt to dissuade the United States from participating in the war in Europe. Even though we were already technically part of the war. 2,403 Americans died in that attack, and it shook the nation. We hadn't fought a war on our own soil since the Civil War, so this was big for us, and it was shocking. We had considered ourselves a major world power after World War I, so for us to be attacked in this way was devastating to American ego. And we would get more in-depth about Pearl Harbor, but that is going to be its own episode for another day. Pretty soon. Um, pretty soon, actually. For the purpose of this episode, though, just know that Pearl Harbor was what launched us into the war in the Pacific specifically, because prior to this, we had just been supplying weapons to the non-fascist powers in Europe, the Allied powers. So we were technically involved in the war without being really involved in the war. Yes, we were never really neutral. That is a lie. We're really good at staying neutral and not being involved in things, you know? You know? We're so good at distancing ourselves from oh conflict. Gosh. Just like we're good at socially distancing ourselves from diseases. Thanks, America. Thanks, America. So two months after the bombing, in February of 1942, then-President Franklin Delano Roosevelt enacted Executive Order 9066, which resulted in Japanese internment camps. So I googled and found the executive order so I can discuss a primary source document with you guys directly from Roosevelt himself. The executive order is called, quote, Authorizing the Secretary of War to Prescribe Military Areas. That sounds like a very nice way of saying, we're moving people to government areas. Government military areas. Wonderful. Exactly. And of course, if you read the whole document, it's pretty dense, as most government documents are. But it does say, quote, The Secretary of War is hereby authorized to provide for residents of any such area who are excluded therefrom such transportation, food, shelter, and other accommodations that may be necessary. So they're making a little area for them to live is what they are saying. Yes. A little area specifically for them where we're going to provide everything that you're going to need and you're going to rely on us entirely. Yes. One paragraph later, he also states, quote, I hereby further authorize and direct the Secretary of War and the said military commanders to take such other steps as he or the appropriate military commander may deem advisable to enforce compliance with enforce the... Enforce compliance. Let me finish. With the restrictions... You can get mad after. With the restrictions applicable to each military area here and above authorized to be designated, including the use of federal troops and other federal agencies with authority to accept assistance of state and local agencies. With authority to accept assistance of state and local agencies. Federal troops. Enforce compliance. Federal agencies. Doing good. Doing great. We are so good at this. And in his last paragraph, he says, it is the military commander's job to give the medical aid, hospitalization, food, clothing, transportation, use of land, shelter, and other supplies. Essentially ensuring these people are at the mercy of whatever these military commanders deem necessary. So pretty much he's giving them power and like another job to do. And I know people who don't have a lot to do at their current jobs, but still find a way to not do anything useful. So if you're giving them another job, 
they're going to find a way to not be useful. And giving a people power over other human beings. Especially human beings that, in this case, they don't like. They never really liked Japanese Americans. When um, Chinese people came over to Angel Island, it was usually one person. Mm -hmm. But when Japanese came over, they brought their whole families. Yeah. So people didn't like that. Yeah. Because they had, like, trouble conform. Like, they didn't conform as quickly. Mm -hmm. Which, why the fuck would they? Yeah. You know, like, you shouldn't expect conformity. So, yeah, they didn't like um, Japanese Americans in the first place. Wonderful. And this order was drafted and issued on December 12th, 1941, five days after Pearl Harbor. It wasn't enacted until two months later, but it was drafted five days after what was deemed, quote, the day that will live on in infamy. Talk about making laws from a place of emotion. There's a lot of emotion here. Five days after they were drafting it up it was, until this point. Yeah. This was entirely emotionally based. Are you... F this order let the military commanders and secretary of war, uh, they gave them the power to relocate all persons that were deemed a threat from the West Coast to internment camps or what the government called, quote, relo relocation centers, which were more inland. Now, I just want to point out here that they only took people from the West Coast, not the East Coast. And they only took the Japanese and not anybody else correct we'll get that to yeah we'll get to that okay now if this sounds scarily similar to what happened over in europe with the nazis it's because it is while we did not systematically murder these people we essentially put them into ghettos because we were afraid of them much like the nazis in europe did weird one step away from nazi germany look all i'm saying is if these people didn't have to give them housing and food and supplies they would not have we straight up pushed them to the ghettos. Yeah. That we created for them specifically. We were one step away from concentration camps. Imagine that. It's fucking scary. So now if you're wondering who was considered a threat, on God, me too. Uh, the National Archive says, quote, prior to the outbreak of World War II, the FBI had identified... German, Italian, and Japanese aliens who were suspected of being potential enemy agents, and they were kept under surveillance. Following the attack at Pearl Harbor, government suspicion arose not only around aliens who came from enemy nations, but around all persons of Japanese descent, whether foreign-born or American citizens. Yeah, they suspected anyone and everyone, even people who were born here, that had no real relationship with Japan at all. Yeah. They just assumed here, which is tragic and violently racist. Yeah. Now, on March 29th, 1942, because of the executive order, Lieutenant General John L. DeWitt of the Western Defense Command issued a public proclamation number four, which began the forced evacuations and detentions of West Coast residents of Japanese Americans. Some of them were only given 48 hours notice. That isn't enough time. No. It wasn't enough time for them to make plans. It wasn't mm -hmm. enough time for them to leave either, which is all what they planned. Yes. Now, they put this order into effect. He, was, he wrote it in December mm -hmm. and then started implementing it in March, but put it into effect in February. They had time to plan out how things were going to go here, the stages. So they and, only planned to give them 48-hour notice. And if that isn't a little off-putting to begin with, just continue to listen. Uh, yeah, it gets, it gets more interesting. <sighs> From the end of March to August, about 112,000 people, though some estimates are closer to 120,000 Japanese Americans were sent to what they called, 
quote, assembly centers. These were often big, empty, open-air spaces like fairgrounds, where they waited to be, quote, tagged, and assigned to which relocation center they would be sent to for the rest of the war. Out of the estimated 112,000 people, 70,000 were full-blown American citizens. Now, they couldn't dispute or appeal anything here, not their loss of property or liberty, because the they did not. Yeah. The, the government did not charge these people with anything like disloyalty to the government. They just forced them to leave their lives behind because they were Japanese. And the relocation centers, they were placed in remote, desolate areas very far inland, out of the way of regular life. Mm. Some of these sites were, and I'm going to name most of them here because I didn't realize there were so many, Tool Lake, California, Minidoka, Idaho, Manzanar, California, Topaz, Utah, Jerome, Arkansas, Hart Mountain, Wyoming, Poston, Arizona, Granada, Colorado, and Rower, Arkansas. Now, when I was taught this and the very little I was taught, I was taught these people were only taken to California. I didn't mm -hmm. realize there were so many widespread internment camps. Yep. Until I started researching this yesterday for this episode. Mm -hmm. And I got heated and I'm heated again. And yeah. these relocation camps, they are internment camps, but relocation sounds really better, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds less dehumanizing. It sounds like, oh, you guys are just moving here for the time being. It's okay. For whenever the, until the war ends, which we didn't know it was indefinite until the war was over. Yeah. So in the internment camps, four or five families with whatever possessions they had shared the tar-papered army-style barrack. Some people lived in these houses, houses, I say with quotes, air quotes, I guess, uh, they lived in these places for three years. Now, as the years went on, they did add some insulation and partitions. And let me say that again. Now, as the years went on, as the years went on, they did add some insulation and partitions. But that is still the bare minimum. If anyone resisted or put up a fight, they were sent to a special camp in Tool Lake, California. This camp was reserved for dissidents. Ah, camp reserved for troublemakers. That... That That's always, cool. that always fills you with joy. Now, I think one of the things that gave me such anger, uh, frustration, have you ever gotten chills in the bad way? Like when you see something and you know something bad's about to go down, your whole body breaks out in chills. Yep. This is what I, what I experienced when I found something that was very similar to Nazi Germany, mm -hmm. which we were fighting against at this point. We were fighting against Nazi Germany. We were making publications about concentration camps and, and hailing how dehumanizing this was and like asking for us to, you know, it was a a push to have us uh, win this war and, and go behind our allies because look at how evil these people were. They're not treating these people like people. How dare they? And we were out here, Americans, doing seeing what the they were doing and doing the same thing. thing. We could not recognize that we were doing the same thing in our own backyard. We couldn't find any fault in what we were doing. We couldn't see the parallels. And I'm not mad. The, I'm just pissed. It's fine. And one of the biggest parallels was these videos that I stumbled upon of these internment camps. And that just gave me flashbacks and chills to a Nazi propaganda video that I had to watch in school. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things Nazi did, Nazis did in this specific concentration camp called Terrorism was film a propaganda film for the International Red Cross to show that they weren't mistreating anyone. It had clips of them doing hopscotch, eating, sleeping, reading, exercising. It was all a farce. But they made that film and they pushed it out there so people thought that they weren't all bad. It was mm -hmm. a lie, obviously. And they made it specifically to deceive people. And America did the same thing with these camps. One of them was like, look at how they're just farming this camp. They have 
So their freedom, such freedom we gave them here in Arkansas. And it's like they didn't want to be here. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. And I don't really know how to enunciate this, but this was not good. This mm-hmm. is borderline evil. And I hate using that word. But you know it's bad when you have to film propaganda films against what you're doing. So. Sorry. Let's. <laughs> mad. Mad. Yep. Let's talk about what kind of lives these people had that the government was trying to hide so badly and has succeeded from hiding from our traditional education, our traditional narrative I continually talk about. Mm -hmm. Let's go back for a moment to the fact that they sometimes only had 48 hours to dispose of or store their belongings somewhere. Many Japanese lost hundreds of thousands of dollars through the sale, quick sale of their homes at below market prices because they had to get rid of it. They had to do things with their animals. They didn't know what to do. Yeah. And while they were at these camps, their things, their houses, if they didn't sell them, were being vandalized, arsoned, neglected. They lost their lives they used to have. (laughs) Now, in the camps. They lived in those crudely built barracks. They ate, bathed, and washed clothes in communal facilities. Each camp was surrounded by barbed wire and guarded by armed soldiers. Even the War Relocation Authority, or WRA, who ran these camps knew how bad the living conditions were, saying, quote, Physical standards of life in the relocation centers have never been much above the bare substance level, unquote, and represented, quote, real deprivations for the majority of the residents. A certain feeling of isolation and confinement is almost inevitable, unquote. Men were given a sort of loyalty test when they turned 17 and the option to fight in the American military if they wanted. They were asked, quote, Will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States of America and faithfully defend the United States from any or all attack by foreign or domestic forces and forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to the Japanese emperor or any foreign government, power, or organization? Unquote. Now, if you didn't answer this or refused, you were sent to that dissident camp at at Tool Lake. And by May of 1944, there were 18,422 people at Tool Lake. 39% of those those people had said no to this loyalty test, and 26% had answered the question, quote, unsatisfactorily. If you had asked that question today, with people who have lived free lives where they aren't locked up by their own government, where they're not sent to these relocation camps and have their entire lives torn from them by the government that has sworn to protect them. If you ask these free people, will you swear unqualified allegiance to the United States of America and forswear any form of allegiance or obedience to any other foreign government power or organization, a lot of the people are going to say no. I mean, they did this specifically for this group of people because they had no other place to go. They couldn't leave. And this was their only way of leaving internment camps. They were the taking advantage. to leave the internment camp is to go fight in the war and probably die. For a country that did not respect you. Or treat you as a human being. How fucked? How fucked? Um, there's one word that, that allows me to answer that question. Um, very, yeah. very fucked. So uh, let's hear some quotes from the people who lived through this horror. Now, I will state here, these were also incredibly difficult to find. A lot of people were so traumatized by what happened in these camps that they still cannot speak about it today. There was an interview I read with a 91-year-old woman who said she might finally begin to be able to speak about it. 91. Mm. You traumatize someone so much that their whole life 
They can't look back on this. Yeah. So let's hear some quotes. Quote, when we were evacuated, we were only allowed to take one suitcase. I was just a little girl at the time, so I stuffed as much clothes as I could into the suitcase. At the train station, the hinges on my suitcase broke and all my clothes spilled out everywhere. I started to cry, but my father stayed very calm and helped me with my clothes. Everything around me seemed so chaotic, and I was scared. First, we were put into the Santa Anita racetracks. We stayed in the stables, saw uh, straw mattresses. We had to stuff them with the straw and the smell and the stench of the horses and the urine and all that junk. And then from there, we were sent to Arkansas, the bayou. Of course, they set up these camps in very desolate places. Quote, I remember in camp, I lost a baby boy. The doctor, I will never forgive him, but he was a young doctor. In the delivery room, I lost my baby boy in the internment camp. I remember some people who lived across the street from our home as we were being taken away. When I was a teenager, I had many after-dinner conversations with my father about our internment. He told me that after we were taken away, they came to our house and took everything. We were literally stripped clean. Quote, we saw all these people behind the fence looking out hanging onto the wire and looking out because they were anxious to know who was coming in. But I will never forget the shocking feeling that human beings were behind a fence like animals. And we were going to also lose our freedom and walk inside of that gate and find ourselves cooped up there. When the gates were shut, we knew we had lost something that was very precious, that we were no longer free. Sometime the train stopped, you know, 15 to 20 minutes to take fresh air supper time, and in the desert, in the middle of the state. Already before we get out of the train, army machine gun lines line up towards us. Now, not towards the other side to protect us, but like an enemy, pointed machine guns toward us. I was a pri- Quote, it was a prison indeed. There was a barbed wire along the top, and because the soldiers in the guard towers had machine guns, no one would be foolish to try to escape. Finally, getting out of the camps was a great day. It felt so good to get out of the gates and just know that you were going home, finally. Home wasn't where I left it, though. Getting back, I was just shocked to see what had happened, our home being bought by a different family, different decorations in the window. It was our home, but it wasn't anymore. It hurt not being able to return home, but moving into a new home helped me, I believe. I think it helped me to bury the past a little, to, you know, move on from what happened. I just want to say quickly about the quote on the racetrack. I read another interview with this woman who said that they were kept in the stalls that the racehorses were supposed to be kept in. Mm -hmm. And I guess this really famous racehorse was given two stalls um, for himself. Mm -hmm. And her and her two sisters were given one stall. And they lived there for 10 months while they were waiting to be, quote, tagged. And Damn. they lived with that smell and that urine and the horses next to them mm -hmm. for 10 months. These were camps surrounded by barbed wire. These were camps with armed guards and watchtowers. They didn't have running water. There wasn't adequate medical staff or equipment. One woman had to give birth to her daughter on her dining room table. Dentists who were interned had to care for their fellow internees with only the supplies they brought from home. When they ran out, they relied on supplies from the government, which did not come promptly. They had to seal the windows because dust would come into the operating rooms, making it unsanitary and an unsterile environment. They had unsanitary food, which 
caused several food poisoning outbreaks at the centers. Couple that with the limited number of communal bathrooms and it was awful. Eating spoiled food, which they often did, was harmful to pregnant women who could lose their babies due to dehydration and vomiting. And they were getting rotten or moldy foods, if that. Some people weren't given enough food or proper food according to their health needs. The lack of nutritional food led to skin diseases and intestinal disorders. Many diabetics did not receive proper food or insulin, which led to deaths. Baby formula wasn't available. The list goes on and on, and it's not an easy list to find. Yeah, I had to dig for five hours to get the information that I got here. It's not easily accessible, especially during a pandemic when I can't get to a library because a lot of things haven't been digitized. One other big part of the internment camps was violence and riots, which always happens when you're stuck someplace that you don't want to be forced. Yeah. There were several cases, which include an elderly man who attempted to flee and was shot and killed. Another two men were shot and killed trying to escape. A riot broke out on August 4th, 1942 over insufficient rations. A man was killed by police in Manzanar camp. A man was shot and killed at Topaz for getting too close to the perimeter. Two months later, a couple was shot at the same camp for the same reason. Mm. It was hell. And now I could, I know I've compared these camps to Nazi Germany, and I know it's not to the same degree, obviously, but there are shocking similarities. And it's tough to find detailed information, and that's for a reason. They tried to hide it. The government has tried to hide this. They destroyed the barracks and the camps, and all in an attempt to hide what they did because they knew it was wrong. It scarred a lot of people for generations. Some still can't speak out about what happened there. I mean, 1,862 people died from medical problems in these camps because they couldn't get proper medical care. These are deaths that could have been avoided. One out of 10 of those died from tuberculosis. How can you look at something like this and be okay with it happening or that it happened? You shouldn't. And the camps closed in 1945 after a Supreme Court decision on Endo versus the United States, which ruled that the War Re Relocation Authority, quote, has no authority to subject citizens who are conceitedly loyal to its leave procedure, end quote. It took two years to get a decision, but the Supreme Court gave Roosevelt the chance to begin the camp closure before they made the public announcement. And years later, they got reparations of $20,000. That's it. Notice how they gave Roosevelt the chance to fix his mistake before they went public with it? Yeah. There's so many There's so many pieces in this story that you're like, wow, this must have happened because they realized it was fucking bad. And I think they did. Yeah. They, they only realized it at the end when they realized, wait a minute, we can get caught for this. We're going to be compared to Nazi Germany. Wait a minute. These are uh, things we could get in trouble for. And, let's let's hide it. And this never happened. It, and they got rid of it and they stopped it. But the real question is were they ever ashamed? Well, with reparations of $20,000, which is bullshit. It's like the same what were the reparations for about the massacre in Haiti? 32 cents or $18. Well, after the government took it out, I think it was like $18 a person. Yeah. No, it was way less than that. It was no, it was $18 a person, and the government took stuff out, and it was like $32, $0.32 cents a person. There we go. So in this case, it's $20,000 for um, forcing you to sell your home, if you could even sell your home, all your belongings, forcing you to move, uprooting you and your entire life, and forcing you to live in squalor for the entirety of the war. 
And some people couldn't financially recover from what happened here. I mean, one of the interviews that I didn't end up using in this piece, she said that her parents got taken away in the first round before the internment camp started, mm -hmm. probably closer to February, because they taught at a Japanese school. Mm. She didn't find them again until they went to the camps together. And then after, they never financially recovered from what happened. They couldn't buy back their house. Mm -hmm. They had to live in, in poverty. Yeah. That's the reality of what we did here. So I'm going to say right now, did America feel guilty? No. No. Because we've done it. I mean, here's what I'm going to say, and the rest is history, but is it? Because we're doing the same thing again here with immigrant children, holding them in detention centers with inadequate care, inadequate medical needs. We are letting these children die, be raped, be abused because we feel, we fear this difference of them. And even now with COVID, we're letting the same hate and fear that happened after Pearl Harbor happen again with violence against Asian Americans for things they didn't do. For what? It makes me sick when I research these things. And time and time again, they keep happening. They keep happening. Recently, text messages had to be sent out from Chinese restaurants saying, we don't have it. None of us have visited in a while. Please, we need to sustain our business. We need, please don't be afraid to buy from us. Don't be afraid. Even worse, there was an Instagram account made just to say that if they saw anyone, um, any, any Asian out in New York City, they were going to shoot them, which is even more appalling. Mm. And it's like, that's where we're at. Between the hate and racism fueled from detention centers and COVID, I mean, what are we learning? How I'd to point fingers. So my hope here and why I keep doing these episodes that are tough to hear about and that are so hidden is because I hope that we learned a little today. I hope that we all feel a little uneasy and sick inside because we should. Look, it can happen to any minority, which is why it's so fucked up. Because notice how Germans and Italians didn't get rounded up and thrown into camps even though we were fighting a war against them too and they were on watch list, they were on surveillance. No, it was the minority. And for all the white people out there listening, I'm white too. We have a responsibility to speak up and speak out against, against things happening to these people. We have this privilege, this white privilege that many either don't want to acknowledge or use, but you should recognize that you have it and you should use it to speak out for what's right. We have to be united against this kind of mistreatment, this kind of Nazi-esque policy, against taking away someone's rights and subjecting them to dehumanization all because they look different than you and you're afraid of that. You, we should all be ashamed in our country. We have that right. We should be. But we should all work toward never happening again so we don't have to give this shame to the next generation. I could go on rants forever here because I'm sick inside, but I'll stop here. So this has been a heavy episode, as you can clearly tell, because you've sat this, this long through it. Which, thank you. So thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. Wash your hands. Don't be racist. Don't hate anybody. Stop pointing the finger at somebody else. And just try and take care of yourself. If you want any of the sources that we use for this episode, please DM us on Twitter at FastPass1 or email us at FastPassPodcast at gmail.com. If you want to start a discussion with me or Jason, you can email us or DM us on either and we'd be happy to start a conversation. Conversation should happen from these things. Yep. If you want to request any future episodes, you can email us or DM us as well. 
And um, until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.